Welcome to episode 49 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre, featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, stage managers, producers, and more. If you'd like to be a guest on Stageworthy or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. Michael Cross is a Hamilton-based playwright, actor, and director. This past summer, his play Dirty Girl was the winner of the Hamilton Fringe Audience Choice Award at the 2016 Hamilton Fringe. playwright from Hamilton. I am. Yeah. Um, and uh, this summer at, I actually want to start with with the Hamilton Fringe. Yes. The show that you did at Hamilton Fringe. Um, and that was called? Dirty Girl. Dirty Girl. Yeah. Um, can you describe what that play was? Oh boy. Can I? <laughs> um, <laughs> it, uh, it was so many things, but then it became a uh, kind of a ghost story about Twitter. Mm-hmm. became like a horror story about Twitter and uh, it started out as just this kind of teen drama about social media mm-hmm. and it just became I just started turning Twitter into more and more of this like monstrous mm-hmm. kind of creature or force and uh, so it basically two uh, two best friends are having a party in the basement <clears throat> together just mm-hmm. the two of them and uh, one of them discovers that a naked photo that they sent to their boyfriend has ended up on Twitter mm-hmm. under a fake account. Um, and they, of course, assume it's the boyfriend that posted it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of spirals out of control from there as I try mm-hmm. to figure out who did it, if not the boyfriend, and why, right. and how to at least soften the storm that's headed their way. Right. Um, so you were saying that, that like, the way that you were telling the story sort of evolved over time mm-hmm. and your your original starting point was just that Twitter was uh, it just became uh, it was kind of just Twitter as Twitter but uh-huh. it framed in uh, the sort of mass public shamings we see so often mm-hmm. on social media nowadays yeah um, which was like it was a big inspiration uh, to read John Ronson's work as a journalist because mm-hmm. he talks about public shaming a lot and just to see how huge it can go and, and how short of a time it can go in. And I wanted to apply that to uh, a story I'd been exploring the year prior at mm-hmm. the Fringe as a solo piece. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of went crazy from there. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because, I mean, if you're talking about, about Twitter in general, um, and your story features uh, uh, two young women, mm-hmm. Twitter is, uh, can be a brutal place. Yeah. Uh, for young women. Oh, yeah. Old women. It doesn't matter. If you're a woman on Twitter, it can be a brutal place. You just have to look at what happened with Leslie Jones yes. after, uh, after the Ghostbusters came out and the abuse that was just sort of like heaped on her. Yeah. Um, forcing her to, like, causing her to leave, to leave Twitter. Twitter can be a bit of a monster. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you, you sort of like started taking it down sort of a, a horror movie yeah. sort of direction. 
Yeah, the Leslie Jones thing. That mm. that yeah. And her being a woman of color especially. Yes. That's like yes. that's making it doubly worse on her. Yeah. And it did. It, absolutely. Yeah. Um and so yeah, the, the the horror movie angle, like the fact that it turns into a monster, the the monster, the way it manifested in the play is not that far removed from mm. how it can be just like humans talking to humans. Right. The only difference being that at a point um, it stops being this this Twitter storm and trending topic mm-hmm. and Twitter itself morphs into this thing that can see and hear their every move hmm. even when their phones are gone, even when all the technology it could come from right. is not there anymore. Hmm. It just kind of hangs above their heads, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and t- terrorizes them and continues to do so. It's interesting that um, you know you were doing this play at the at the Hamilton Fringe, and um, well, Fringe tends to skew younger, generally, um, than some of the more established theater companies. Generally, Fringe, in most places, goes a little bit younger because of the independent spirit. Your play seemed, from what I could 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 tell, really resonated with. You know that generation that so many theater companies are wrestling with, with trying to to talk to millennials and people who are are even much younger than, than the millennial generation. Um, was that something that you you chased after? Something that you were trying to speak to, or did was it like a, a, a sort of a happy accident that it, it happened that way? Oh no, it's fu- that's fully what I always chase for with my work, um, especially yeah in our like evolving theater ecology, just kind of. In Hamilton specifically, but really everywhere, mm. where uh, theater companies are noticing their audiences literally dying yes, yes. and having to make adjustments. And I know, I know a lot of theater companies for a while, in, in Toronto anyway, and probably surrounding areas, would try to engage younger people just by making it um, financially more accessible for them. Mm-hmm. So offering student rates and, and stuff, um, which will help if the teenagers are trying to attract are already on the pulse of theater, yeah. right? Uh, it, you know, it doesn't really make a difference unless they actually care about theater to begin with, but how do you then engage the people that don't care about theater yet or don't think it's for them? Right. And so that's um, kind of my mission as a creator in Hamilton and uh, anywhere I work, I guess, mm. is just how do I not only find that audience, but also tell a story that matters to them and is specifically for and about them. So, I mean, just... just you know, I mean, maybe some people might think it's a dumb question. How do you find that audience? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I mean, part of it right now is that I'm fortunate to be uh, pretty young myself mm-hmm. and therefore my personal networks and my network's networks and so on and mm-hmm. so forth are about as young as my target audience. Right. And uh, so promoting myself through social media channels mm-hmm. and stuff, it ends up reaching... Uh, those younger audiences. Mm-hmm. And I think it just comes down to how do you tap into the communities that these young people engage with? Mm-hmm. How do you make them think that this is something for them and something they actually want to see as opposed to spending their money on something else? Uh, and yeah, so it just, and telling a story that is uh, directly for and about them, which yeah. so much theater that we expect young people to see isn't. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that's sort of that's one of those things that I think people are, are grappling with, in in you know both the indie scene and also just generally, is the whole idea that, okay, first off, everybody knows that they have to reach a larger, like a younger audience. But generally, what a lot of the larger theaters present is the same 
damn thing that they've been doing all along yeah. that their aging subscriber base has been going to see. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of problems with that that I see. First off, if you get young people into the building and they're looking around and they're seeing they're seeing blue hairs, they're saying to themselves, apologies to the blue hairs, they've, <laughs> yeah. they've, you know, they've kept a lot of theaters going, but they're look, young people are looking around and saying, this is not for me. Right, yeah. And also, um, how many times can you see Hamlet yeah. or the importance of being earnest? Not that some of the bigger theaters are doing that, but there comes a time when throwing the same... like. Every year, we're, when Stratford is giving us either Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, or Hamlet, how many times can we can we have that? Yeah, you know. So approaching it in a different way is kind of important. And yet, how do how do you expect uh, a a company where the people at the top are still the same people that were speaking to that older group yeah. to be able to talk to a younger group? Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, a lot of it, and this is speaking as someone who, who works administratively and artistically mm-hmm. at uh, Hamilton's Regional Theatre, where they do, like, a lot of their season is programmed with um, sort of a, a wide mainstream mm-hmm. audience in mind. And that's, you know, totally for the life of the theatre at mm-hmm. this point. And uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that a lot of these theatres... Uh, it feels as though a lot of the theaters, at least at this point, are trying to kind of slowly warm the bathwater. Mm-hmm. So none of them are going to immediately program a new season uh, that's all completely different yeah. work for a different audience. But even um, even the theater I work at, it uh, every season there's one or two shows that are a bit more edgy, a mm-hmm. bit more challenging, maybe a bit more uh, tangible or accessible to mm-hmm. a younger audience or a more uh, culturally, contemporarily savvy mm-hmm. audience. So there's that. Um, but does does that actually bring that younger audience in? That's the you know, it's it's tricky. Um, the work itself might, because how do they know it's necessarily for them? Right. Yeah. I mean, a theater company, promotionally speaking, it doesn't really serve you to say this is a play for you explicitly no. because they're going to go, yeah, sure. And, of course they are. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're the same company that's been doing, you know. Romeo and Juliet for the past three years or whatever it is yeah you're the company that's doing the same old stuff that I'm not interested in now you're telling me this is for me yeah yeah it's it's a tricky multifaceted Mm -hmm. question and multifaceted problem that I see yeah different companies trying different things out Mm -hmm. and uh, some being far more aggressive about it than others Mm -hmm. a bit more experimental Uh, this might not exactly apply, but even just the steps taken by Factory Theatre with their incoming season, it's a completely, uh, it's a a whole different, like the entire season is of non-white creators, Mm -hmm. and so that's surprisingly something we never see. Well, it's so rare to see that, not just non-white creators, but I mean, it's, it's the season programmed by a white male, full of white males, um, both on stage and in the the writing mm-hmm. and that's something that that a lot of theaters have justifiably been taken a task for yeah i i it's um a thing i mean i'll speak from my own experience of doing dirty girl specifically mm-hmm. um because i've i i've listened to the podcast before and i heard the fringe round table and mm-hmm. i heard this my play talked about a fair bit and uh 
Brian Morton, I think it was, was talking about the the play's evolution from mm-hmm. a solo piece that I performed the year prior that um, ticket sales wise didn't do well at all, mm-hmm. uh, and that was just because I couldn't figure out how to sell it to the audience that I needed to sell it to. Yes, yeah. and an older audience felt detached from the work in a way, or felt uh, because the the work for all the things it tackled, a big part of the story was also a child porn investigation. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were kind of weirded out by that, understandably yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, the play wasn't creepy about it. It wasn't uh, exploitative about mm-hmm. it. But people had no reason to believe anything else. And of they course, just see yeah. the words child porn and they go, that's not, I'm not going to see that. Exactly, exactly. That's yeah. a dangerous. And then the same thing kind of happened for, for young people where I, we didn't succeed in making it sound like something exciting mm. and something uh, at least genre-wise that they could engage with. Mm. I think turning Dirty Girl into a genre piece Mm. I think inherently made it more interesting to people. Mm -hmm. Just the horror angle of it um, made people go like, oh, this is is interesting. See, what's interesting is that that, you know, having been around the the Hamilton Fringe Festival while this was going on um, I don't think I was aware of the horror aspect from what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that you were sort of keeping like for a word of mouth thing, or was that did that did I miss something? Uh, I, I'm a lot. Of, I mean, we didn't, we weren't explicit about the mm-hmm. horror because I, I also it was this tricky balance of not wanting to ex- uh, people to expect that we were doing something blatantly in the horror genre okay. because yeah. it, it was a horror play in the same way that uh, the works of someone like Annie Baker I know has played a lot with this kind of. Uh, pseudo horror where mm-hmm. the play itself is not a horror but there are elements that can be taken as metaphor or taken as something realistic and happening to them mm-hmm. in their literal world yep. uh, and sort of dropping things in so there were no like blood and guts in the yeah. play um, the monster never manifests itself physically per se mm-hmm. uh, so at its core it really is just a more um it's it's a drama with these horror elements kind of propelling it forward into mm. something even more intense. Mm. Um, and so I dropped the word horror a lot because it uh, it was intriguing and not incorrect, but I also didn't really use it super aggressively because right. I didn't want to build expectations that we weren't going to meet. Right. Uh, so it was billed as a techno horror story. Okay. Um, and yeah, we didn't do much more beyond that. Mm. It's interesting about, about, you know, it's kind of important not to tell everybody everything about your show. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it, it loses the hook. And I was very thankful that with my show at, at, at Hamilton this year that people who, who uh, uh, reviewed it didn't give away too much. Right. That, so that the humorous angle of the, you know, the atheist who is chosen by God to deliver his 12th his new commandment doesn't get people don't know that there's a, a punch in the gut twist at the end um, that sort of changes it so that people come in expecting you know this this you know weird quirky comedy and they get something that's a little a little heavier right. it sounds like with Dirty Girl uh, people came in you know with maybe the vaguest sense that there was something horror but he, like hearing your description without knowing that like Twitter sort of becomes this this monster within it I just think that it's the horror of like having the world of Twitter turn on you rather mm-hmm. than 
Twitter itself. Yeah, which it is for most of it, and mm-hmm. then it just keeps upping itself and mm-hmm. upping itself and upping itself, and it, it just becomes this relentless thing where you think it goes about as far as it could go, mm-hmm. and then it goes further mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. So that was what we were trying to sort of... Um, capitalize on where the elements of like you think you know where the story right. is going to go um, but it's going to go even further than mm-hmm. you think um, and this wasn't this isn't your first Hamilton Fringe that you've been a part no. of no no um, how long have you been been participating Ooh, in Fringe I think this yeah this was my fourth year as mm-hmm. an artist cool and before that were you an audience member or did you just come in as an, audi- as, as uh, an artist occasionally I was I think in in my uh, sort of pre-theater school days uh, I didn't get to see a whole lot of, of Hamilton Fringe and then when I was in my year about to go into theater school mm-hmm. I attended as a community reviewer they would recruit um, community members mm-hmm. to review shows which was interesting so I got to see a lot that way and then the next year I submitted a play I had written uh, a year prior for the Sears Drama Festival mm-hmm. and uh, kind of reimagined it and uh did really well, I think, which which kept us coming back. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, for, for a first-timer, and especially for people that were just kind of young across the board, yeah. uh, not many of us topped 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, the show did really well. It won Best of Fringe that year. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a nice way to start, and that's a big part of what's kept me coming back there since. There are a number of people that, that, I, was, that I, I saw with, with shows this year that... that that skewed quite young as far as the the fringe went in Hamilton. I was it was really good to see that that fringe was attracting uh, artists that were that were sort of you know on the lower end of twenty and, and mm-hmm. working that way. I mean, it also of course always uh, you know it's a lottery, so it attracts people from yeah. the whole spectrum. But it's always interesting to see you know the age range of the artists and sort of I think that says a little bit about the place where the fringe is, take, is happening. I think so, yeah. And I think it, uh, it says a lot as well about um, how the theater scene in Hamilton is changing mm-hmm. because four or five years ago, I couldn't say I would have returned mm-hmm. after theater school because uh, I studied here in Toronto, as, as most go? people. I went to Humber College. Okay, cool. So uh, I studied physical theater there. And my whole idea with that was I'm not going back to Hamilton <laughs> afterwards. I'm like, the theater scene in Toronto is huge. Yes, there are there yeah. actual you know shots of a career here for me. Mm-hmm. And all the people I had known to go to theater school were like, they'd left Hamilton Mm -hmm. and stayed in Toronto Mm -hmm. after leaving their conservatory. Uh, And so that was going to be my plan too. But then after participating in the fringes every year, every summer in between uh, years of school Mm -hmm. and just seeing like, huh, okay, things are kind of growing at a decently rapid rate. Mm -hmm. Like... Um, the second year that I did Fringe, I think nearly doubled its attendance. Hmm. And then, of course, this year shattered attendance yes, records for yeah. the Fringe as a whole. So it is continually growing. And I think the arts as as a kind of general unit are, are becoming this huge thing mm-hmm. in Hamilton. And the community is really, really embracing it in a way that uh, wasn't evident before. Yeah. What about theater outside of Fringe in Hamilton? Because, of course, I only know... Yeah. The scene in Hamilton during Fringe, having having been there this summer. So, what what is the theater scene like in Hamilton when Fringe isn't happening? It's small, and in a lot of ways problematic. Mm-hmm. I think the Fringe is kind of the peak of uh, of the year from a theater perspective, uh, especially from my perspective in in terms of people getting to develop new work mm-hmm. on a public and 
pretty well attended platform. Mm -hmm. Other than that, uh, there's really not a lot of uh, routes to go in the city at mm -hmm. this point f towards new play development. Um, Theater Aquarius has its playwrights unit, mm -hmm. which I'm a part of, um, but other than that, and there have been a couple of initiatives that have popped up and uh, haven't really continued since their, their inception. Mm -hmm. So it's this constant battle of um, needing a platform to develop new work in a supported way, mm -hmm. uh, because unless you are really driven and independent and have producing savvy, mm -hmm. uh, which, I mean, I had to learn that really, really fast to do my own work in the fringe, yeah. uh, which I've done every single year. Uh, with limited resources, yeah, which a lot of people have to do, especially in 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 Hamilton, where yeah. uh, it's yeah, I, I'd like to see more of it. I'd like to be part of creating some of more, more of it in the city as well. In an ideal world, like what what if you could pull out any solution that you can think of, what do you think would need to happen in Hamilton to make that happen? I think um, there's this weird. And this is not a general truth of the mm -hmm. city, uh, but not a ton of people at this stage anyway um, apply for, for grants or for funding for mm -hmm. their work, uh, whether that's the fact that they don't know how or mm -hmm. that maybe things get in the way. Um, but it can be... It's, I, I don't often see um, Arts Council-funded work happen mm -hmm. in the city outside of Theatre Aquarius or mm -hmm. the odd thing that does pop up here and there. And... That's the thing. Like I remember going to a grant writing session where we were told as a group, um, because of Hamilton the way it is and Toronto the way it is, if a Hamilton artist and a Toronto artist were to each submit a grant application of equal heft, mm -hmm. uh, the jury would be more likely to choose the Hamilton grant over the Toronto I about, grant. I was about to say, actually, yeah. because if you're looking, I don't know about the Canada Council, but Ontario Council mm -hmm. is very much interested in supporting stuff that's not from Toronto. Yes. Bad news for me, good news for <laughs> yeah. other people, but you have to you have to ask for it. Yes. Um what do you like so people were to to apply for grants are you looking are you thinking uh, playwriting grants, development grants? I don't know the, like since I don't know the scene outside of Toronto. I know what I would do here mm -hmm. in in Hamilton. Like if you had your preferred like what would you love to see happen for you? If everything was to fall into place, right? I I would love to see a professionally funded playwriting development initiative, mm -hmm. maybe some kind of festival or series mm -hmm. where uh, the artists involved could also reap professional benefits, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is very important yes. and doesn't yep. happen as often as it should in Hamilton anyway, mm -hmm. um, and supports the work of new voices who don't hear themselves on stages. I mean Hamilton is um, full of community theaters and mm -hmm. community theater groups. Yes. The problem with those groups is, uh, of course, I understand they have to stay afloat, yep. but there is a tendency, again, to program the same old same kind old. of yeah, stuff. Of and it's rare to see a community theater, I think, in a lot of places, to program uh, a new work by a new voice, especially yeah. a local voice. So while there are a lot of really successful, booming community theaters. I mean, Hamilton hosts the oldest living community theater in, I think, North America. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's become a staple of the city. But I'd love to see more, uh, even like community initiatives. And the Players mm -hmm. Guild did have a, um, 
a, a play development initiative called First Stage that my dramaturg Stephen Neer was sort of uh, the pilot mm -hmm. of. And I hope to see that return. It's kind of taken a hiatus, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but it seemed to be a great thing and a great step in that direction. Yeah. I think that I think that the scene that I saw is the kind of thing that I think if somebody was to come in and do a storefront-style theater there, they could really tear things up. Yes. Like, just somebody who could... If you could take the Toronto storefront model and, like, move it into Hamilton and program a lot of Hamilton playwrights and things like that, you could really be transformative in that yeah. city, I think. Yeah, and a lot of young artists have been talking about such an initiative. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's... It's in ridiculously early stages of discussion, mm -hmm. but there is a very passionate group of young artists and creators in the city mm -hmm. who are frustrated by the lack of opportunities available to them yeah. and the lack of a sustainable... I mean, there are numerous routes through which to program your work. You've mm -hmm. got the fringe. You can always, if you can get the resources, uh, independently program your mm -hmm. work, but there's no way to make any semblance of a living or even like a, yeah. a respectable portion of a living doing theater mm -hmm. in the city. Um, so I'd like to see some, some initiatives or some programs or some, some yeah. kind of establishment that can offer the professional artists living in the city with professional interests. Yeah. Uh, something that helps make their career sustainable in yeah. Hamilton. Cause a lot of artists, myself included are fine. We're finding uh, that a lot of, our professional opportunities are coming externally mm -hmm. from places like Toronto. Yeah. And I find myself having to, to get my foot in the door in Toronto theaters mm -hmm. and uh, because that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, you know, if you're talking about a group of people uh, who are talking about this sort, of, this sort of thing, that's probably the way, a great way to do it would be to have an umbrella organization that sort of like was a group of, of theater uh, professionals mm -hmm. just to get together on a project like a yes. storefront theater. It's probably the way that I could see that succeeding, even if, if you know, aside from the two that I know of in, in Toronto, you, the Red Tank Castle and the storefront, um, though I think that groups of artists have a, a really good chance of like putting those sorts of things together. Yeah. Um, where, just to, to, to you know, come away from just the Hamilton scene and, and Fringe for a second um, what thinking back when did you first start being interested in participating in theater or like see that as, as something that you wanted to do oof um, I mean performance and and uh, being the center of attention mm -hmm. has always been mm -hmm. a thing since childhood I think I only realized um, my love of theater specifically when I was in my later years of high school. Mm -hmm. I took drama classes throughout, like, even my early years of high school, grade 9 and 10. I think grade 9, I failed or came close to failing drama. Mm. I, I think I left with, like, a 50% or a 58% or something, okay. and I did not do very well, mm. um, which then, fast forward three years at my school, I, I was writing and directing our Sears Drama Festival mm -hmm. plays and it became this thing where I'm like yeah this is and I enjoyed being in a leadership role with it as mm -hmm. well um, I enjoyed kind of taking the reins and guiding a project 
towards something and, and collaborating on it with others mm-hmm. uh, who were just as passionate about what we were doing yeah. as, as I was. And after that, I think it just, it just kept, uh, kept growing. And then I went to Humber and had my world changed there, mm-hmm. as so many people yes, do in their course. theater yeah, yeah. schools. And uh, yeah, the rest is kind of history. Do you know what changed for you between that first year in in drama class where you almost failed and after that? Yes, uh, I've I've always been whether or not drama whether or not my heart was in drama class mm-hmm. um, all throughout. It was my heart was always in performing, specifically mm-hmm. as a magician. Okay. I was a magician first. And so at my high school, I had a reputation for that, mm-hmm. and it was a, a thing that I did constantly, and I'd entertain in the halls, mm-hmm. and uh, I even had like a YouTube series, which was like David Blaine style, where mm-hmm. I'd walk through the halls and film <laughs> myself doing magic for people. Um, that uh, So that was kind of my claim to fame, and then by the time, um, I think I was in grade 11, when Sears Drama Festival auditions were going to happen, and I was interested in that. And I had been encouraged, once people found that I wanted to audition, I was encouraged to bring some magic to my audition. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were thinking, like, because the play was very fantastical, they, yeah. they said, like, we'd love to maybe see if you could do some, like, cool transitional stuff for the play and just come out, do magic between scenes or something. They mm. were kind of working on this thing. And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, so I went to the audition I brought no magic. I brought a monologue, mm-hmm. and I ended up getting a lead in that play. And the experience of working with this small but committed team, mm-hmm. um, because Sears Festival, while it can be a very political thing, mm-hmm. uh, is also it really kind of uh, pushes a drive yeah. in those who really care about it. Mm-hmm. So I every year I did Sears after that I was like. It was go time around Sears yeah. time, and I was like sick to my stomach all week, <laughs> which I still am with everything yeah, I do. Of course. Oh man, um, but it's, yeah, Sears was really the launching point, and it really it gave it gave theater a sense of greater purpose in my mm. mind. Um, even though it's framed as a competition, and that's kind of weird, there's still this yes. like we're recognizing those who perform excellently. Mm-hmm. We want to acknowledge people who are doing. Um, doing good work and encouraging them. So I remember, I think it was my my final year of Sears and the play that I ended up bringing to the Fringe my Mm -hmm. first year. uh, It was, looking back, a very ambitious piece for a 17-year-old to write. It had a cast of 13, and each person kind of had, some were more thinly drawn than others, but uh, everyone had their own agency and had their own narrative arc in this Mm. piece. So it was kind of a, it was a huge undertaking, and... I'm not sure I could do it now. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure I'm as audacious as I was. Um, but we did the piece, and then our adjudicator, who is a pretty notable dramaturg, um, before the big adjudication that happens at the end of the week, we're all sitting in anticipation, and then someone walks on stage and says that the adjudicator would like to see all of the student playwrights in the uh, lecture room. So we all go okay, and we go to the lecture room, and we sit there and. The adjudicator comes in with a big stack of all of our scripts on his lap, mm. and he just picks each one of them and kind of just goes through and points out specific things and says, like, you don't need this whole page. Mm. This whole page is garbage. You don't need it. Um, do you know why you, Why did you write this? Why, why is this this mm. way? And he just basically brutally dissected all of our work, and we're all kind of sitting there blindsided. Yeah. Um, 
and I I left that. I th- I mean I think part of me felt kind of crushed by it, but yeah. I think a a bigger part of me respected it a great deal because I think not everybody would 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 do that. I mean, especially yeah. when you're not expecting it. If that's not part of the standard, it's not. And and that happens. That is a blindsiding. Yeah, yeah. I had done Sears for two years prior to that, and we had never had anything like that. It was remarkably unusual, oh. and so having that happen was like, whoa! Like, what was? Yeah. And he would, you know, he would praise certain elements of what we'd created, and then he would just rip apart other elements mm. of what we'd created, and you know, he didn't pull any punches. Yeah. And I'm I'm thankful for it because I was, I mean, working on other work at the time, and it forced me to go to that work and and do some pretty drastic things to it that I might not have thought to or known to do yeah. unless he had said, like, you know, he had, he taught me the importance of cutting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had to learn to fall out of love with so much I had written and say, this isn't necessary, let's get rid of it. <laughs> you know, I think that fringe helps with that a lot of times if you're in the 60-minute category. Yes. I've seen a lot of shows that are in the 90-minute category that could be in the 60-minute category. Mm-hmm. I've almost never seen a show at 90 minutes that needed to be. It was just justifiably 90 minutes long. Almost never. Yeah. Almost never. I'm in the same boat, yeah. yeah. Um, so very, very rare that that happens. Um, and the 60 minute category can really force you to be, to sit there and brutally decide, what do I need? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and most shows benefit from cutting. Mm-hmm. You know, most shows benefit from taking. You know, if you really love something, I've heard, and this is the hardest thing I've found to do. I've heard, you know, if you really love this this sentence, this phrase, this paragraph, take it out. Yeah, because it's probably there because you really love it. That's yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you went to Humber. Yes. Um, was Humber your first choice for schools? No, okay. not even close. Okay, okay. <laughs> let's, let's 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 talk theater schools. Let's yeah. Talk theater schools. Oh, let's talk theater schools. It's um. <laughs> I had always envisioned myself going to a place that was more text-based, mm-hmm. uh, more more or less because of my love of text mm-hmm. and um, my my passion for for playwriting and for words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I was going to study acting because I love acting and I love. Um, but there, I I likely would have studied playwriting had there been more accessible avenues for it. It's yeah. like. National Theater School or bust, yeah, right? No, absolutely. And then it's, if you're is, not one of two that's students, that's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. In, I mean, there's the there's the devised program at York. Yes. But aside from that, and National Theater School, nobody else is touching playwriting. No, it's it's a minor in. Yeah. A pro- you can take it as like an extra thing, if anything else. Yeah. It's like a small part of a creative writing course at best. Yes. Uh, so that's been a, a trouble. It's like if you're not one of the two students accepted into NTS yes. every year. Yeah. Then what do you do? And so uh, I thought George Brown and and it's you know it's focus on sort of text based mm-hmm. classical work uh, and training people classically would be a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. And the audition scared me out of my mind. Where, when when you auditioned, were they at the Young Center? Or was yes, for Young Center. Okay, it was at the Young Center. And so I remember walking into a big room mm-hmm. with a bunch of people who said nothing to me. Okay. I stood on an X about like thirty feet away from them. Okay. Like a whole ocean between us. Mm. I just walked in, said my name, said the name of my first piece, did my first piece, said the name of the second piece, did that, did like 
seven seconds of my song before they cut me off. And then I walked out. Did, did nobody talk to you? Not really, no. I think they might have said hello. The, but... the audition process, when I auditioned for George Brown, mm-hmm. um, we were at, this is before the Young Center was ever a glimpse in anybody's eye, we were in a small warehouse at King and River Street in Toronto. Okay. Um, and we went into one of the studios there. We went as a group and they spoke to us all. Peter Wilder, who was the head of acting at the time, gave us all the No One Wants You speech. Oh, man. Which everybody gets, which is which is the Nobody Wants You because actors are a dime of do- a dozen. If you can do anything else, leave now, go do that. Right. We were told that. Yes. I mean, not, not in those exact words, mm-hmm. but I, I remember being told um, before, we, before things got underway, mm-hmm. they were like, this is what we train actors to do. This is what we want out of an actor. If this doesn't sound like your idea of acting or of theater, uh, you can leave now. We'll refund your audition fee, mm-hmm. and you can go. And then no one left. Of course, and because, like, because whenever... <laughs> I know when I was getting the Nobody Wants You speech, I was like, fuck you, they want me. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that everybody who goes to that, through that, that particular speech is thinking basically the same thing. We got an interview after our... our uh, after all, we did if we were lucky. Okay. I didn't get that far. Mm. <laughs> they, they mm. think they kept like they had a group of maybe between fifteen and twenty of us okay. that day, and they came in and said, "We want to see you and you. Everyone else can go." So it was like most of us were sent yes. home, and then mm. there were like two or three that got that got to stay and talk to them some more. Um, so it was a very short-lived experience. It's probable that George Brown, I think, has a reputation now that it didn't have. That it was only starting to get when I when I was there. Which was it's you know it produces actors who can deal with text. It produces actors that go on and do stuff, mm-hmm. things like that. It had a certain reputation. It was developing that at the time, and I think maybe now it has more of the, excuse me more of that. Yeah. Um, were there other schools that you looked at aside from George Brown? It was between George Brown and Humber at that okay. point. I think it was because I decided to apply so late in the game. Mm-hmm. I had already taken an extra year of school because I didn't feel prepared enough to, to leave just yet, or to at least to go to mm-hmm. uh, a post-secondary institution. Mm-hmm. So it at that point, I think it was just kind of colleges that were left, yeah. and George Brown was one, and then I saw Humber, and that's where my dad went for something else completely. Yeah. But uh, So I was like, yeah, why not? I might as well. I'm paying $60 to apply to these schools, mm-hmm. so I might as well just toss that one in. And then I went, and there was something about it where I was like, oh, this is like... Because it's such a diverse training program, mm-hmm. uh, in many ways, especially now, where yeah. um, a lot of the students emerge. It's a very diverse group of actors that they pull in every mm-hmm. year now, too. Um, but even just what is taught and how it's taught, like... Mm-hmm. You, it kind of runs the gamut. I mm. mean, there's there's that we have that solid, rigorous classical training in text, mm-hmm. uh, we, and we also had very European avant-garde physical theater mm. style training. Yeah. And basically, the whole program was framed as some classes are not going to resonate with you at all. We're sure, and you will take what you get from everything you take from all the classes you mm-hmm. take. And if things resonate with you, then these will be tools in your bag. Yeah. And if not, it's only a semester at most. So just, you know, learn what you can from it and let it yeah. go if you don't think you need it. So it was a great uh, environment to kind of... They gave you building blocks yeah. and you got to build the kind of actor that you wanted to be and the kind of actor that um, you were kind of meant to be mm-hmm. as a human being, I guess. Is is the Humber program... Uh, uh 
a conservatory program? Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's, it, I think by the time I had started, it, it had only been for maybe just over a decade. Mm. Uh, only then had the, the training really adapted into, into what it is mm-hmm. now, where we were told that before us and maybe about 10 years before us, the program was just kind of this like mishmash of stuff and it didn't know what it wanted to be mm-hmm. and people were leaving and not getting hired anywhere. Right. Uh, and so it became what it is today and it's it's become a very strong training mm-hmm. program that's training brilliant artists mm-hmm. that are doing amazing, amazing things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's, it's constantly in flux. That's one of the beautiful things about it mm-hmm. is I could go up to someone who's planning to go to Humber uh, like a few of my friends are starting there in first year now, and I could, I'm like, I, I could try to tell you what you're going to do, but I don't honestly know because yeah. it changes every year. Mm. Like um, we had programs that we were like the pilot class to try. Yeah. Like we were uh, the first, we were the first class to do the theater for young audiences project, okay. which I think is probably one of, if not the most valuable project that Humber does, and I think that they should always keep it because uh, I. I think we all learned immensely from doing that kind of work. Yeah, I remember. I remember performing for for a, like we would do a children's show when I was at George Brown. Mm-hmm. We would do that around Christmas, which is you know when you do that. Is it the Robert Munch thing still, or was it different? It was then? different then. We would do a different one uh, at that time. There was a different show each year, and fuck, kids are hard. Yeah, like they will. They will not. You cannot bullshit. Yeah, you cannot bullshit a, a, a child audience. Yeah, we did fourteen-year-olds. Uh-huh. That was, yeah. and you know, before we had started doing TYA, we didn't really know what it was. Mm-hmm. We all had our preconceptions of, yeah. oh my God, we're doing children's theater, yeah. which isn't actually what it ended up being. Mm-hmm. We were guided um, by Mary Beth Badian, who has a lot of experience doing theater mm-hmm. for young audiences, and she's like, "We're going to do a piece for high schoolers," and we're like, Ooh. "Oh, okay." So then we started reading plays like uh, Hannah Moscovich's "In This World" mm-hmm. and um, Misha by Adam Petal, mm-hmm. uh, things meant for kind of a, a more adolescent or high school age audience mm-hmm. and the prof like just we would read them as a class for our like two week intensive at the start and the profound effect those plays had hmm. on people in the class uh in in ways that i had never personally seen any other work hmm. due to anybody like it was the connection to that material even though so many of us were so far because rem- we also read some that were like intended for five-year-olds yeah. or um, and the effect they had on us we were like wow like this is this is powerful mm-hmm. stuff and it's not at all what we thought it was and then we, we dove into creating this piece for 14 year olds which was informed by actually uh, we did a tour to high schools uh, throughout the Toronto area mm-hmm. and we um, as we were creating the show we went to those schools and did um, drama workshops mm-hmm. with the kids who were going to be seeing our, our show huh. and those were also a way for us to observe them in their kind of natural yeah. element and uh, just watching them behave the way they behave and the, mm. the kids who were too cool to participate in the drama games and would stand off to the side or uh, the kids because it was just like a constant battle of status of course, all the yeah. time I we, we played the game do you know the game Adam? like you're all walking around the room and someone screams Adam and then a number like Adam 4 and four of you have to grab and link arms or, or just hold okay. on to each other. And if there are people left over, they're out. Right. So that's the there are different versions of this game. But we played that version, and uh, at the closer to the end, it was Adam too. And there, I think there were enough of us that everyone could grab someone. And then this one young boy tried to grab another young boy by the arm, and the other boy pulled away. 
and said, I'd rather be out than touch you. Yo! Woo! And uh-huh. we all had to just stand there and observe. We couldn't be like, of whoa! Course, yeah. Like, we just had to be quiet about it. But it was like, ooh, these kids are brutal. Yeah. It was insane. And uh, it, it later flipped because then um, that same group of kids um, came to our turf. Mm-hmm. So for another session, they came to Humber. And then they were totally different. <laughs> like, they were watching it. They were in our school. Yeah. And uh, their dynamic was totally different. Mm-hmm. And they would just they kind of sat in and just watched us. Um, do ensemble work and, and kind of rehearse a little bit mm. and they were just kind of like in awe of what we were doing and how we were doing it and then they all left and this one kid who was I think one of the quote unquote cool kids he kind of ran back after his whole group was leaving and just like stood there and beamed about what we were doing yeah. he was like how do you guys get into this school like yeah. what is this is amazing like you have so much fun this is like incredible and it's not something he would say in front of his friends. He no. had to wait until everyone was gone, yeah. and then he just gushed to us, yeah. uh, which was really amazing. Huh. Like, yeah, it was it was a very fulfilling way to work, and that's mm. what informed the way I write now. Like, I, I write for young people to get those audiences, that those kids into theater, mm-hmm. and not the kind of theater that we tend to send them to. Yeah. Like, you know, if they're in high school, the kind of theater they're going to see is they are probably going to read a Shakespeare that they don't want to read, talk yeah. to somebody who doesn't know uh, how to perform Shakespeare, yes, yes, yes. and makes them read it like literature. And then they are forced to go and see that play yeah. that they already hate because they're being forced to read it by somebody who doesn't know how to yeah. perform it. And they, they're not going to enjoy it, rather than getting them in to see theater that... that would speak to them or be interesting to them yeah you know yeah it's 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 huge and that's mm-hmm. why I love touring companies like Roseneath mm-hmm. and uh, and companies like YPT mm-hmm. who along with their works for for younger kids they all they also program or, or tour works that are meant for an older mm-hmm. audience and I've been able to see some of these and go like wow yeah. like every kid this age needs to see this play because yeah. it's it's bold and provocative and really pushes the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Like, I could see a young person watching this play and being just drawn in by the fact that it almost feels like something they shouldn't be watching. Right. Because it just, uh, yeah, and um, and just even reading some of these works, not having seen them staged, I'm like, wow, like, I, I can only imagine what a young audience would think of this. Yeah. Like, In This World yeah. by Hannah Moskovich is a big example of that. You can tell in the play... Um, it's about, like, a, just under an hour long, and you can tell at kind of, like, the halfway point of the play where the, the kids are going to kind of do a 180 mm-hmm. where you can imagine them kind of laughing at the scenario mm-hmm. and then there you can tell on like on the line you can tell where they're going to flip and mm. be like oh mm. oh this yeah. is whew. yeah huh. which is why I love that play and why I love writing provocative plays mm. for young people when you're less I want to I want to sort of to break down a little bit about writing play provocative plays for young people yeah. Um, how do you? I mean, I'm 46 years old, so writing play. I feel like for me, writing plays for young people is uh, like I would be. I don't know. Like that's not where my brain goes. I'm not young enough. I think I would have to do a lot of research and get somebody to help me. Yeah. Um. But when you, which is of course a problem that a lot of theaters have when they're trying to talk to to younger audiences. Um. In terms of when you're writing something that's intended for a young audience. You're trying to write something that's provocative to that young audience. Mm-hmm. Can you do that without offending their parents? It's, uh, well, um, 
yes, I think, or... Or do you have to make them promise before they start, before they see the play, <laughs> that they won't tell their parents about anything they've seen that day? It, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's a, I, I mean, from Dirty Girls specifically, mm-hmm. when I did that play, um, one of, it was more or less a challenge to myself as a playwright, but um, it, it kind of... I think it made the play better to not have really aggressive swearing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've written plays that are more profane. Yep. Dirty Girl, there was not one fuck in Dirty Girl. Okay. There was not one shit. Like it was, it was a pretty clean play by those standards. Mm-hmm. I still had offended parents who were offended by the use of the word slut because uh, it's used a lot in the play. Right. So I was like, I didn't really think of that as as a thing that could make you mad to hear. But, but you know, the, the the thing is that I don't know if you could write that topic about Twitter and about a picture of a girl naked that's shared on Twitter mm-hmm. I don't think you can do that without using the word slide not at all yeah that, not and be it, truthful to the to your to your to your premise and your topic yeah it's uh, it and it's an important word yeah. and it's it was important that it was in the play and it wasn't there to be gratuitous mm-hmm. and it, it was there for a very specific purpose mm-hmm. and I think if you were to write a play for a young audience and so obviously withhold language like that, yes, where yeah. we know in their world it would be, yeah. they're going to call bullshit oh, right away. They're going to call bullshit, and they're going to disengage. And yeah. so it it was a difficult play to write because mm-hmm. not only was I writing from the voice of young people, but from young women. Yes, and I am yeah. I'm not a woman. No. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I haven't lived that experience. So it required a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Reading was important. The most important thing was talking to young people, young yeah. women. And um, and the, I was grateful to have young women open up about experiences, mm-hmm. not unlike what happens in the play, not too yeah. extreme, but uh, dealing with uh, that culture. Yeah. And and even like giving dr- like drafts of scenes to young people, young women, and mm-hmm. going like, read this, call out my bullshit, yeah. please. And they would. They would say like, yeah, my friends and I would never say this. Mm. And it was. It, it requires you to put a lot of your ego aside as a playwright. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot more work, um, but it paid off because when we did the play, mm-hmm. I got a Facebook message from someone who saw it who has a daughter, mm-hmm. not a daughter, a, a sister, who is the age of the girls uh, in the play, mm-hmm. who came to see the show and said that they were happy to see um, a play where teenagers actually sound like teenagers and not what someone <laughs> thinks they sound yes. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that yeah. was a really it's it was it was a lot harder to pull that off mm-hmm. than I think it sounded because the dialogue that I write generally is very messy and very frenetic and mm-hmm. and so it was um there's a lot more effort in it than yeah. than it seems. And it paid off because young mm-hmm. you would see especially young women would grab onto this play. And there was one performance of it where, weirdly, there was, like, just 30, 50-year-old men there. Like, there weren't really any young people huh. at one performance of the show. And they were, like, dead quiet the whole show. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And not in, like, yeah. an engaged way. They no. were like, what the hell? Like, yeah. this, is, this, is, this is shit. And it was, a, it was a rough run of the show. Oh, and I left, I left feeling miserable. Oh. I'm like, oh, they hate... None of the jokes landed. No, of course None not. None of the um, really provocative stuff landed or resonated with them mm-hmm. either. And you could just... There was a restlessness in the theater where I was like, ooh, this is painful to sit through. Yeah. And it you, for a second or for a night, I guess, you feel kind of awful about your work. And then you go, but it's not for you. It, no. This isn't a play about yeah. you. It's not for you. And 
so there were there were of course a lot of people who are outside the demographic of the play who connected with or appreciated or were affected by the play mm-hmm. um a lot of parents saw it and were affected by the play yeah. for whole different reasons and uh there was a performance too where uh, there were these two youngish girls who i didn't know um uh, sitting in the very front row of the staircase i sat at the back yeah. usually and so about like two-thirds of the way through the play maybe three-quarters i saw them like slumping down in their seats and just kind of like hidden away and they looked like they were just lethargic and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, it, yeah. this is like at least pretend you're enjoying it or something. I'm sitting here too, um, but I'm like, hey, if they if it's not engaging with them, yeah. then it's not engaging with them. And I found out afterwards, like I we were striking the set, and my actors were like, did you see those girls like crying in the front row? And I was oh. like, I thought they were like sleeping, not crying. <laughs> and so they were actually they were the opposite. They were like, mm. and what they were they were friends, so they were both like getting down low to sort of get closer to each right. other. Yeah. And they were um, because they were in closer proximity to the actors than I was. Uh, the actors could hear them like whispering things, right? And yeah. kind of like whispering, like, no, don't do that, no, no, no. Like they were as if they were trying to will the actors to do uh, something yes, different. Yes, so yes, it was yes, it was yeah. a completely opposite thing. And I was uh, like, wow, like mm. that. Yeah, and so the reaction out of young people, the ones that did come see it, like cool. that, yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. I, you know, sometimes I wonder if you know we're just again it goes back to we got to stop doing the same old thing mm-hmm. to try to you know we can't entice young people in mm-hmm. with the same old. No, it's it you know it goes two ways too uh, by programming new work by new voices. We're not only uh, opening up the doors to new audiences, but we're also opening up doors for those new voices exactly. to get on those stages. You like, know, we're also opening the door, the, the, the experience of the people who would be coming anyway. Like the, yes. the people that, you know, who are... Broadening their perspectives, yeah. yeah. And it, it can be tough. Like, it, it's that kind of warming of the bathwater that I was talking yeah. about, where I know um, one of the plays that Theatre Aquarius programmed, it was their, their co-pro with CanStage, mm-hmm. they did Tribes, mm-hmm. which is a very profane play. And they did that as part of their season, and uh, I recall stories of a lot of walkouts during that show, because the usual Aquarius audience couldn't yep. really handle the profanity of it mm. and were offended by it. And so it takes some climatization. Yeah. It's not going to be immediate. No. But um, the more I see classics programmed mm-hmm. and they're still a valid part of our theater ecology, I want to see them a lot less. Yeah. And I want to see bigger platforms open up for new emerging voices so they too can have a chance of being canonized like Shakespeare. Yes. Or yeah. like the playwrights that we hold on a pedestal now. Why do we just keep giving them the biggest platforms? And there are voices that are saying something about the world right now who yeah. are kind of getting pushed aside. We, we we need to make a space for the next uh, Judith Thompson and the next Daniel McIver and yeah. the next Brad Fraser and the next uh, uh, whoever. Yeah. Um, because those people have their place, but new stuff happens too. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I think we're about at the end of our time. So, uh, yeah. well, uh, thank you for, for, for coming on and, and talking with me. Yeah, thank great. you very much. This is great.